It is a, dare I say, super Sunday today. Uh, why is it a super Sunday today? What is happening today? The Lord's Supper. That's exactly what's happening today. That and that alone is why it is a super Sunday. Uh, and see, long after, what Super Bowl is it? I don't even know. 51. Uh, long, I mean, 51 Super Bowls and believers all across the globe, uh, many of them will not even know what a Super Bowl is, but you sit down and you break the Lord's Supper with them, believers of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation will know exactly whose victory we are celebrating. Amen? And so today is a Super Bowl Sunday, not because a game that's going to play at 1.30 and a kickoff's going to happen, uh, but because Christ, and you're like, I know the time, all right? I know the time, and guess what I think about the time? I don't care. That's what I think, all right? So uh, we'll go, and we'll worship the Lord, enjoy, and partake of the Lord's Supper. I've got, uh, seeing as how this is a very uh, communal type of service, where we will together as one body purchased, redeemed by the blood of Christ, uh, we will partake. I've got a very exciting thing that I want to do first before I get into my sermon. I have some new members that I would like to present to you. Uh, for membership that I'm very excited about, and I'm sure many of you are very excited about. We've all enjoyed getting to know our Texans, uh, Bill and Rosario Lyons. So would you please stand up, Bill? They even match today. Very good. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, they're both a wonderful. They've been a blessing ever since they've been attending us. I mean, right away, they're just like jumped in and helping out and doing all sorts of things. And uh, I'm not, I shouldn't say this. I don't know. Rosario, I'm going to put you on the spot. This is going to be weird. Um, actually, Rosario is, this reminds me of my mom, right? So um, my mom's far away. So there you go, mom. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, same age, Mexican, we're just there, we're there. Uh, so, with great joy, I've gone through the um, member orientation with them, uh, and I would gladly present them to you, Kahului Baptist Church members, for covenant membership. So all who are willing to receive them, let it be known by an aye. Aye. And are there any opposed? You guys have gotten to know them for the past weeks and months. And I encourage you, if you haven't, then get to know them. Go meet them. You have a covenant with them, with Mike and Daisha, with Pete and Donna. Uh, and so I'm actually going to ask them to be in the front door on the way out. And you give them a hug, uh, give them a big holy hug, an aloha. Make them feel welcome and get to know them. Uh, and they'll be there to get to see. So praise God. We have new members of Kahului Baptist church. And now, as Wes said, I am very excited. I've been excited for literally months to get to this, uh, and I did not plan it on Super Bowl Sunday, all right? I was just going through. Uh, I don't, you know, look at what's the NFL calendar look like as I'm planning my sermon. So it just so happened it was Super Bowl 
Sunday that we enter really the pinnacle, the, the final redemptive defining moment. If you were a, a, an Israeli, if you were a Jew, you would look back on this time, even today, and this would be the defining moment for them. This was the moment of their redemption that God was drawing them out of Egypt, fulfilling his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and that they're going to come out and he's going to bring them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and demonstrate judgment over all the gods of Egypt. This was their defining moment. So on Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. For them, it's Passover. So the what we're about to see in Egypt and all that happened from chapter 7 uh, till the crossing of the Red Sea, that for them was their redemption. That was the cross. That's the equivalent in the Old Testament. The cross for them is the exodus out of Egypt. So this is just massive. Now, the Bible is a very strange book. It's a very strange book because unlike any other book in the world, the more you read the Bible, the more you realize you don't know. The, the more actually you grow in humility. It's very humbling. You can be, have read it your whole life and grown up in church and you still come to it and you feel like a novice because it is just so rich and it is the mind of God. And yet... And yet, it's so simple that a child can take the message and understand that there is a God who loves them, who has provided salvation for them in Christ, and they can believe. So it's amazing. It's an amazing book. You study it, you get the main concept, and then you go back and it's humbling. You're like, I know nothing. I know nothing. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Why? Because it is the very Word of God. Now, as I said, this is the pinnacle. The pinnacle of what? If you're just joining us, if this is your first Sunday with us, we've been walking through the ten plagues, or really the Hebrew word is the ten strokes of Egypt, the ten strikes where God is exercising judgment on the gods of Egypt, on the Egyptians. For what, you ask? Well, for enslaving his people for 400 years under harsh and bitter oppression. Uh, God is rescuing. He is redeeming them, ransoming them. Now, we have seen, uh, we have walked through the plagues in three sets of three, right? We walk through each uh, set. They're actually spelled out for us in the narrative in three sets of three, which you're like, that's nine. Aren't there ten? Yes, because the ten, the final one that we're going to be in today, exceeds them all, and it stands alone in the narrative. It's the only one with a full introduction the full explanation, and with the full ceremony of remembrance for it, that they were to remember forever. So this one was to be different than all the rest. And this is the act that God would, one, judge all the gods of Egypt at one time, not just a few at a time, but he was going to exercise judgment on all of them at one time, and also define himself, stake a claim definitively on his people Israel for all time, for all time. So this is a massive, beautiful passage, bloody, very bloody and gory as well. So let's pray, ask the Lord's blessing, and see what he has for us. Father in heaven, 
I ask that your name would be hallowed this morning. I pray that you would be shown to be holy and righteous and just and a God whose word will stand fast here in 2017. And Father, I also pray that we would see your mercy and your grace to sinners and providing a sacrifice and providing a substitute. And Lord, there are many in here who are, uh, figuratively speaking, still in Egypt. They are in bondage, in oppression. They are looking for deliverance where none is to be found. I pray that they would look to the great Lamb of God, Christ, this morning and see that He takes away the sins and sets free sinners today. Would you give true freedom as we hear your word preach and as we taste and see that you are good in the Lord's table. We ask that you do this in your name and for your glory. Amen. All right, number one. I've got three points. I resisted the urge to make them all start with super, although you could put that in there in all of them. So number one, a great act of judgment. You see, a super act of judgment actually would have worked, right? But this is a great act of judgment, number one. Number two is a great act of deliverance. And number three is a great ceremony of remembrance. So a great act of judgment, a great act of deliverance, and number three is a great ceremony of remembrance. There is so much in these chapters. We, we just, I just can't in one sermon. This is actually a very humbling passage even for a preacher to preach on because it is the pinnacle of the Old Testament. It is like preaching on the passion narrative, and that's always humbling because you can't, you just, how do I do it? Just, just read it. Just go home and read over it and just let the Word of God change you. But, but this we will try to expound on. There is much we will not talk about. Uh, we skipped over chapter 11, as Uncle Lance said. Chapter 11 is really a continuation of chapter 10. So if you remember, chapter 10, the conversation kind of ends with, with Pharaoh saying, Moses, get out of here. The day you see my face, you shall surely die. If you ever see my face again, you're done. That's how chapter 10 ended. Chapter 11 is kind of an opening and expansion on chapter 10. And what we see is that Pharaoh, as a false god, they thought that the Pharaoh was a god. Pharaoh, as a false god, claimed to have the power of life and death. He claimed actually the very same thing that Yahweh claims in Exodus 34. You remember? Moses asks, I want to see your glory. And what does God reply? No man shall see my what? My face and what? Live. Nobody shall see my face and live. You see the narrator tying these things together. What does Pharaoh say? You see my face again and what's going to happen? You're going to die. Pharaoh believes, he actually believes he is a god and has Moses' life in his very hands. And he couldn't be more wrong. He couldn't be more wrong. And the Lord tells him through Moses, he warns him exactly what he is going to do. And God is going to exercise judgment on Pharaoh, judgment on the gods of Egypt. Now, we have seen, I mentioned before, uh, that this is a redemptive story told in creation language. 
Even from Noah being put in a what? In a tabat, in a basket, in an ark. Noah was put in an ark in the river and so delivered from waters of judgment. This is chapter 1, teeming, no pun intended, with creation language. Chapter 1, all connected with Genesis. Remember, the first word of Exodus starts with what? And. That's the very first word of the book of Exodus, showing it as a continuation of Genesis. And so we continue to see that this creation language is used in this redemptive act. So in creation, what was the final crowning act? God created what? Man in his own image and likeness. And he did what? He breathed the what? Breath of life. He gave life to man and said, and looked over all creation and said what? It was very good. And here in the plagues of Egypt, God has been decreating, so to speak. He has been bringing chaos into his created order. And he'll continue to do that. Whereas initially, God took the waters of chaos in Genesis chapter 1 and brought land onto them and began to bring order. We're going to see in a few minutes, God's going to take the waters of chaos and part them for his people and destroy the Egyptians and the crossing of the Red Sea. It's a creation, it's a redemptive story told in creation language. So as the final crowning act of creation was creating man in God's image and likeness, now in the plagues, in God's decreation, the crowning act, if you will, the pinnacle of it, of this final judgment, the high point, is not giving life, it's what? Taking it. It's taking it. In his final act, if you will, God will be taking life that he gave. He will be taking specifically the life of the firstborn in all of Egypt. Israel, Hebrew, Egyptian, beast, any firstborn will die. And this will be the crowning act, the final act, the curtain closing, so to speak, on the judgment of God. Now, there's a very interesting connection uh, before I move on past firstborn. How many firstborns are in here? If you're the firstborn in your house, raise your hand high, high. Look around. You're all dead. Okay, you put your hands down. You're all dead. You're all dead. When I was reading through this with my son, Titus, uh, trying to explain that he's the firstborn, sorry, son, you and mom and I'll be here with, right? That, that's, that's the reality. I mean, that's a significant number of people in this small room. Think about a nation. It's crippling. It's crippling. More than crippling. Beyond crippling. Ir- ir- irreparable. And this is what God is going to do. There's actually some very interesting connections. Uh, We just won't really be able to dive into this, but for those who like to do further study and and connect some things, there's very interesting connections. Remember, Genesis is a bookend to what? Revelation. And Exodus is a volume two to the book of Genesis. So if you think about it, there's actually a lot of connections between the plagues of Egypt and in the book of Revelation that you see pop up again. Actually, Revelation 16. You see many of the plagues come out and repeated that you saw in Egypt. You see water to blood. You'll see darkness, hail, locusts, 
boils. And you even see those pesky frog creatures even return. You even see the frogs come out again. They even make it in the end. Resilient. It's a direct allusion to what God is doing in Egypt. So what we start to see is that just as everything with the Old Testament, what it points the way and paves the way for what God is going to do in Christ in our world. In like manner, with the plagues of Egypt, they are a, you could think of it as a foretaste of what's to come. What God did in Egypt to draw his people out of Egypt, he is going to do on a global scale to draw his people into the new heaven and the new earth and work our redemption. Go read it. It's cool. And Revelation says, blessed are those who read the words of these books. So, interesting, interesting connections that one day of greater redemption, a greater exodus for God's people that he would affect in Christ, the deliverance of his church, the deliverance of his elect, the deliverance of the redeemed on a global scale are going to be repeated, these plagues, and instead of there being a distinction between Israel and Egypt, there will be distinguishing between the people of God, the church, and the world, and God will draw us out finally forever, and we will in that day sing his praises for all time. We will commemorate it forever and ever. No more stain of sin or sorrow or suffering anymore. Zero bitter herbs, zero bitterness, period. Praise God. Glorification. Glorification. That's what we want. That's what we remember. That's what we work for. That's what he works in us for. So it's judgment on the gods of Egypt, judgment on Pharaoh. God told Pharaoh way back, chapter 4, let my people go. Israel is my firstborn. If you don't let them go, I'm going to kill your firstborn. He warned him. He warned him. And even in this, so this is a really horrendous plague, the death of firstborns. It's a, it's a terrible act of judgment. And I mean terrible in the sense of terrible. Not that God is terrible in doing it, but it's a terrible thing to happen. It is a fearful, terrible thing, it says, to fall into the hands of the living God. But God is yet so merciful that he told him, this is what's going to happen. He warns him, stop, turn, let my people go. Nine plagues, nine strokes. God is patiently waiting for him, waiting, waiting, calling him to repentance, calling the Egyptians to repentance, calling his people to faith in God. God is patient, even amidst judgment. We always see this. This has always been God's pattern. He is merciful and gracious, even in the midst of great judgment. But this is exactly what he told Pharaoh would happen in chapter 4. If you don't let my firstborn go, I will not let your firstborn go. And very interesting, who is called the firstborn son of God? The true firstborn. The, type, the, the anti-type, the fulfillment of the type, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called the firstborn son of God. He is what this is pointing the way to. And God is true to his word to Pharaoh. He's true to his promises of judgment. He's also true to his promises of grace and forgiveness. But God is always true to his word. So it's judgment on Pharaoh. It's judgment on the Egyptians. 
And we talked about this as an ethical problem that, that many have raised, right? Why, how is it just for God, a good and gracious and just God who's fair, how is it just for him to exercise judgment on a people for their leader? They're not the ones hardening their hearts. They're not the ones acting as Pharaoh. Why would he judge the firstborn of every? And what about the beasts? What do they do? Why do the animals even suffer? It's an ethical issue. God is judging the Egyptians for what, though? See, the Egyptians are not innocent bystanders. They're far from innocent, actually. Uh, They are not victims of a tyrannical ruler. Rather, the people of Egypt were complicit in the sins of Pharaoh. How? You think Pharaoh can keep half a million people plus enslaved by himself? No. They're complicit in the sins of their leader. Why? Because they enslaved, they actively enslaved the people of Israel. And remember, who did Pharaoh give the orders to to cast the Hebrew babies into the Nile? The people of Egypt. The people of Egypt. They were explicitly complicit in the sins of their leader. Now this shows, this is a lesson for us. Listen closely. This shows that citizens of a nation cannot excuse their behavior because a certain behavior may be acceptable or legally mandated. The citizens of a nation cannot excuse their behavior because that certain behavior or action is legally mandated or allowable. There's a broad application to this. Very broad. Apply it however you will. But just because something is legal, beloved, or allowable under law does not mean we can indulge in it and that it is a good thing. So he's judging the Egyptians. He's judging Israel. Wait a minute. He's redeeming Israel. He's judging Israel. What happened at the cross? He judged sin. What happened at the cross? He redeemed us. This is the way God's judgments are. One act is often, on one hand, a judgment against sin and simultaneously mercy to sinners. This is a judgment on the sin of Israel. God would demand of Israel, of his people, that they confess their own need of a Savior, that they confess to their own sin and actually tell them and anybody with them that you need a substitute. Somebody's going to die in this household. Something is going to die in this household, in every household, and everybody is in need of a substitute. And why do you need a substitute? Because you are a sinner just like they are. And he tells Israel this over and over. It's not because you're more special, Israel. It's not because you're greatest or strongest of all peoples of the earth. You're nothing. Why did God choose you? Because he did. Because he's God. That's what he does but you're still a sinner, just like everybody else. Somebody's going to die in every household. And what he did is he demanded that they, Israel, act on faith and provided a lamb, a substitute, 
slaughtering it as an admission of their sin and repentance. Now, why did they need to do this? Where had they been for centuries? They've been in Egypt. Chapter 6 shows us an Israeli people who wouldn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They didn't believe him. They didn't want to listen to him. They were done. Which means they weren't rejecting just Moses. Who were they rejecting? The God of Moses. The God who commissioned and sent Moses and his promises. They were struggling with faith. And now, throughout all of this account, God introduced himself to the Egyptians. God introduced himself to Pharaoh. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? And he introduced himself to his people. He's showing who he is. He is a faithful God, a powerful God through all these signs and wonders. And now in this act of the Passover, what he was asking Israel to do was to express confidence, faith, trust in God. Are you going to serve the God of the people around you, the Egyptians? And we have reason to believe that they did. They did. Why? Because a few chapters later, they're going to be worshiping a cow. Where did, where did they learn to do that? In Egypt. So now God is going to ask them, after all these things, are you going to trust in me? Are you going to identify with me and my commands? Are you going to act on that faith and slaughter a lamb, paint it on the doorpost so everybody in Egypt will know this is a worshiper of Yahweh. Are you going to do that? Are you going to bear the reproach that comes with it? Or are you going to remain with the Egyptians? Beloved, in like manner, this is what the call of repentance and faith in Jesus is. This is what it means to follow Christ in like manner for us. What happens is God does all these works around us. Just think, God is working around you in all these ways, just as he worked around Israel in all these ways. Maybe a miraculous healing that you should, many of you are like, dude, I should be dead. I mean, my life, I should be dead. Or I had this healing, this disease, and, and God just took it away. Or, or a car accident, and God protected me. Or, or I got this major injury that they said I would never recover from. And here I am, I'm recovered. Or I needed a job, and God gave me a job, and God gave me a house, or God gave me a child, and God, God's done all these things all around me. And yet, and yet, at some point, while many people acknowledge in some form that God does all these things around them, yet they never plant the flag and say, my allegiance is to him and him alone. My allegiance is to God through Christ alone. And I will identify with him in every way possible by faith. I tell you, beloved, this morning, that God has done the work of redemption. He has done it in Christ. It is completed. It is finished. He has worked around you in all these ways that you're probably thinking about. Let me ask you this. Will you trust him? Do you trust him? Will you follow him in obedience today as we saw last week? Will you leave Egypt entirely? 
tomorrow may be too late. Tomorrow, the destroyer can come to our house at any time. Will you believe today? It's a great act of judgment on all peoples. It's bloody, very bloody. It's a great act of deliverance, number two. A great act of deliverance. God would provide what would be called the Passover lamb. So going through the house in Egypt, midnight, don't go outside. Why? Because everybody's dying. Something's dying in every household. But it doesn't have to be for that for you. Judgment is coming on all peoples, but there's a substitute. If you take a lamb without blemish or spot, you should see all, I mean, your New Testament little concordance in your brain should be just like firing all sorts of things off. It's meant to. You should take a lamb unblemished, a year old, in the prime of his life. That's the significance of that. In the strength of his life. When was Jesus killed? About 33, 34 years old. The strength of his life, the prime of his life. You shall take a lamb unblemished, a year old, can come from the sheep or the goats in this time. You'll take it out, keep it with you for no more than 14 days approximately. It could be longer, it could be less at this time. They would have it in the house with the children, the family, a lamb for a household. And at twilight, you're going to slit the ram's throat. You're going to kill Fluffy. And your children are going to wonder why you're doing it. We know this had an impact on the children. Why? How could it not? How could it not? Okay, we're in the city, so, so for us, uh, we, we don't live generally farmers' lives. Did anybody grow up on a farm? Who grew up on a farm? Who's ever killed a chicken? Anybody? Chicken killers? Okay. Chicken killers. All right. Uh, cows. Anybody ever slaughter a cow? Help slaughter a cow. Anybody? Bloody, right? Super bloody. How about a sheep? Anybody ever? Sorry, Nolan. Oh, Nolan raised sheep, so he's had a part in it, right? So very, very bloody. You should talk to these people with their hands up and see what this process is like. This is just, it's really kind of gross to me. I've never, I mean, I don't even touch a chicken. I'm scared. Okay, right? These things, but they have them here with them, set apart, taking care of it. And on the, the, that day, the 14th day, they were to slit the throat, take it, drain the blood into a basin, get some hyssop, a branch of hyssop, and, and paint it on their houses. Amen. Doesn't matter anyways, because they're going to leave. They're going to pack up their stuff. They're, they're going to have, they're, they're going to go to sleep with their clothes on and their shoes on. Who goes to sleep with their shoes on? Right? That's essentially what God's telling them to do. Get ready. Wear your clothes. You're not going to have time to make breakfast in the morning. So just take your unleavened bread. That's what you're going to eat on the way out. Because as soon as I come through Egypt, everybody's going to know, and you're going to be asked to leave. And the children are going to ask you in times to come, why are you doing this? And you're going to tell them. You can just imagine these, if you just like feel the, Insert yourself into the reality of these people. They've been slaves for centuries. What'd your dad do? He's a slave. What'd his dad do? He's a slave. What'd, what'd his dad do? He's a slave. Their hands were probably callous. Their feet were callous. They had stripes on their backs. And as their children are watching them do this act, you can think, my son's not going to have this life. 
My son's not going to have this life of bitter of slavery. They're going to they're going to have a different life. It's going to be better for them. Isn't that what America is actually like full of? Like immigrants coming over and having a better life for their children? And God was going to give them eternally better. And I mean, this is massive what they're thinking as they're doing all of this. I just don't even know. I can't believe it right now. I, don't, I still can't believe it, but I'm by faith trusting that, that God's going to set me free. Powerful powerful, had an impact on all, had an effect on the children. I want to talk about that for just briefly. He says 12, 26 through 27, those verses, chapter 12, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. That's what this is, beloved. I've had some of you ask me, because you see me walk forward with my children, and you, you're wondering, is, is Pastor letting his children, is his, his two-year-old daughter partake of the Lord's table? No, I'm not. And I encourage you to bring your children forward with you. They don't partake, they watch. Because I want them watching, just as their children would have been standing there watching. I want them watching so that one day they'll see it, and they'll say, why do we do that, Dad? And throughout their lives, I'm just going to tell them over and over, this is why we do it, son. This is why we do it. And they're not going to understand at first. Titus asked me last week, do we drink Jesus' blood? Yes, son, you're part vampire. Good job. Right? No, do we? And, and, and I get to give him the gospel all throughout his life. This is what it is. This is what it is. Can I have it? Not yet. Why? Gospel. This is why, son. But you can if you'll believe. If you'll repent of your, right? That's why we do it. We want our children. This is why I want my children worshiping with you. This is why you should want your children worshiping with you. Because when time comes and says, why do you sing, Dad? Why do you sing, Mom? Why do we do X, Y, Z? Gospel. This is why. This is why. There's a lot we could talk about with the actual lamb and the Passover. I want to talk about a lamb for a household. That's what he says, right? You shall take a lamb for a household. One scholar notes the unfolding of God's plan like this. I quote. He says, there's an obvious, clear progression here in the text. With the lamb serving as a representative for a larger group of people. At first, God provided a lamb for one person. Thus, Abraham offered a ram Instead of who? Isaac. Next, God provided one lamb for an entire household. This happened at the Passover, with every family in the covenant community with its own lamb to God. Then, God provided one sacrifice for the whole nation. Book of Leviticus, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. One lamb for all of Israel. And then finally... Finally, the day came when John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, sees Jesus walking, lifts his finger, says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. God was planning this all along. One Lamb to die for one world, and by His grace, He has provided a Lamb 
the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world, Revelation 13.8. Praise God. Praise God. We have a lamb without blemish, 1 Peter 1.19 says, without spot, who Hebrew says was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, who stood the test before Pontius Pilate, who was blasphemed, yet uttered no blasphemies in return. He did not revile in return. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. Actually calls him that. Christ, our Passover lamb, our substitute. It's a great, unfathomable deliverance for us, beloved. And as a result, point number three, we have a great ceremony of remembrance. A great ceremony of remembrance. See, God's redemption of his people in the Passover was to be the beginning of the year for them. It was to be the beginning of the year for them. Their slavery ended, over, done, pow, finished. He didn't want them living by the calendars of the Egyptians, by the calendars of the surrounding culture. He actually marked a new calendar based off their redemption. This is to be the first of months for you. You are a new people. Israel, new life, new time frame. That's why I don't really care about the time frame of the Super Bowl because we are a new people. We don't go by the time frame of our old Egypt or of the world. We have a different clock that we follow. We are to be redefined by our redemption. And this is how it is for us in Christ. Is it not? Our redemption in Christ, your redemption in Christ. Think about when you got saved and you came to know Christ. Your redemption in Christ is the beginning of a new life for you. We're told, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Praise God, your old life is gone and your new life is hidden with Christ and God. With new power, new appetites, a new nature, a new master, and a new calendar. New everything. You are outfitted with new clothes, the very righteousness of Christ. Our true life begins, beloved, when we behold Christ by faith. And those chains of slavery are shattered forever. We're now defined by our Redeemer in every area. And then there's this little bit here about unleavened bread. It's kind of weird. Kind of like before this big pinnacle Passover and he's talking about bread. Oh, by the way, your bread loaves. We've got to talk about that. Right? What, what is this, this deal about Bread. Leaven, like yeast, would work its way through bread and cause it to rise. It would work its way through the entire bread. Now, we don't make bread. We buy it at Costco. So, personally, I have no frame of reference for how this actually works experientially because my bread is all leavened. I like leavened bread. I like bread, period. Amen? Too much. It's bad. 
But here, he wants them to sweep out and leave out all the leaven of Egypt. And the gesture here, in essence, is he doesn't want any of the influences of Egypt coming with them that might spread through and corrupt them. Get all the leaven out of your houses. Unleavened bread. You are a new people. Now, leaven, from this time on, throughout all of Scripture, would be identified with the effects of sin. Why? Because what does sin do? Sin, a little bit, works its way in, spreads, and corrupts everything it touches. And so it became a very fitting analogy of sin. We're told in 1 Corinthians 5 that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And he's talking about, corporately, church discipline here. But of course, individually, it applies as well. The Lord desires for us to get all of the leaven out of our lives, to sweep out all the remnants of our former manner of slavery, of our former practice, and be a new lump, pure, holy to Christ. Let me ask you, how are you doing in this? This is the ongoing work of sanctification in the life of the believer. This doesn't happen all at once. It's a gradual working as Christ conforms you into his image and likeness. All of us will have areas that we are regularly working on and, and getting out of our lives to cleanse the leaven from among us. 1 Corinthians 5, he's talking to believers or unbelievers. Believers. In the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, after becoming a Christian, is led to the house of the interpreter. It's the name of this guy who owns a house, interpreter, so John Bunyan's very good with his names. Uh, he leads you to the house of the interpreter, and the inter he is told that the interpreter would show Christian many excellent things for his journey. And one of the things he shows Christian, he takes him to a parlor in the house, and the parlor is full of dust. It's not been cleaned in who knows how long. The, the, the dust is thick. And he, he calls for uh, somebody to come and start to sweep the room out and starts to clean it out. And, and so this guy, has anybody ever swept a dusty room? All right, what happens? It goes everywhere. It doesn't clean up anything. It gets all over you and all over everything. So this guy starts coming and sweeping the room, and yet it's just causing a massive dust storm. And if it was me in there, I would be sneezing my little head off. Then the interpreter calls a woman over and says, spray down the room. So she sprays it down with water, and then the room is able to be cleaned. And he likens it that the cleaning of the, the first man who came was trying to clean up our lives by the law, by doing good works and, and just trying to do good things. Do more, try harder, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. You can exercise willpower. That's kind of, and what happens when we do that is we just make a mess of things. It doesn't work. And he likens the second person who sprayed down the room as being sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Abiding in Christ, being cleansed with the gospel, and as the gospel, like the blood of the lamb, is sprinkled on you, and you partake of it as you eat the bread, the body of Christ, and drink his blood, you are hosing down with the gospel you, these dust in your life, and you are then able finally to clean and conquer it. Sanctification, ongoing, 
consistent abiding in Christ. Finally, we have to, of course, we can't stay at the Passover. We have to go into the future or our past, so to speak, to where? The Last Supper. To the Last Supper. We find in the Last Supper the fulfillment of the Passover meal in Christ. Christ, who offered himself as a lamb on our behalf, as our substitute. We deserved to die. We deserved the wrath of God. We deserved to be struck for our sins and our transgressions. But on Jesus, Isaiah says, was our iniquity laid. Isaiah describes him like a lamb who was led to the slaughter. And so we go fast forward to the Lord's Supper many hundreds of years later, way after Exodus, Many, 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 many centuries later, and we find Jesus in an upper room with 11 of his closest companions. And Jesus in that upper room takes bread, and he breaks it. He gives it to them and says, what I'm about to say to you, this is my body, which is broken for you, then he takes the cup in the same way. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. At the Passover meal. He's doing this at the Passover meal. Why in remembrance? Why in remembrance? Because that's what they were told to do. Do this as a memorial, the Passover, in remembrance of this great act of event. And now Jesus is going to do a greater act of event at Passover. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Tim Keller, scholar, pastor Tim Keller, actually notes this, very interesting. When Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, there was wine and there was bread, but there was no lamb. There is wine and there is bread, but there is no lamb. And he explains that's because the lamb was not on the table, because the lamb was at the table. The lamb was serving. Jesus was the lamb, present in person in fulfillment of the Passover. So let me ask you this. Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. Is he your Passover? Judgment is coming. Just as it was then, judgment is coming now. But there's a substitute. You can have a substitute. Is Christ your Passover this morning? Have you applied by faith the blood of his sacrifice to your life? Are you feasting on him, Christian, daily? abiding in him for your food and nourishment. And if you're not, or if you are like at the house of the interpreter needing to sweep up, will you do so by faith in the sacrifice of Christ today at the Lord's table? Let's pray. Father in heaven, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall lay any charge against God's elect if you have canceled our payment at the cross of Christ? 
So we thank you, Lord. We can't thank you enough. We do this in remembrance of you, that you are our Passover lamb. We thank you that you, a God who is holy and just and loving and merciful to sinners, that you invite us to your table and you fellowship with us and you will one day dwell amongst us in full glory. So Lord, may we look forward to that day. May you get all the glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.